electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome, everybody, to Halftime Report. And for Scott Wapner, I'm Tyler Matheson. Stocks are having their best, or had, their best first half since 1998. One year after I joined CNBC, all the major averages up double digits. You should probably keep riding the rally into the second half of the year. That's a question. We're going to explore it today. And where's the best place for your money? That and more on halftime. We'll debate all of it with our investment committee. Jenny Harrington, CEO and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. Steve Weiss, Jim Labenthal, Josh Brown. Let's meantime get a check. Welcome to all of you. Let's get a check on the markets this hour. The S&P 500 coming off, get this, 34 record closes in the first half of the year, hitting record highs today. There you see it, up about a third of a percent. The Dow is higher, coming off its first negative month in five, but I think it's five positive quarters in a row for the Dow uh, and for several of the other market measures as well. NASDAQ lower today after posting its seventh positive month out of the last eight. It's off about a tenth of a percent right now. Jenny, let me start with you as we look ahead to the second half. How do you handicap it? Is it going to be as good as the first half? That's pretty doggone good, but good, but just not as good or what? I don't think well, it's going I, to be as good. I think if it were as, 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 as good. This is for Jenny. This is for Jenny. I'm sorry, Jim. Oh, sorry. Um, I think if it was as good, that would imply that we're going to be up 26% this year or a little bit more, and that seems pretty unrealistic. It wouldn't surprise me if we look back six months from now and we're still around this up 13, 14, 15% range. But I think like what we've seen over the past few weeks is there can be a calm surface and there can be massive churn and bubbling underneath that surface. One thing in a world where you can make no guarantees, I can guarantee you this, it won't be a straight line between here and the end of the year. It's always bumpy, it's always choppy. When I think back to the fact that we're up, thir- uh, that we're up as much as we are this year, I think we're reminded more than anything, you don't fight the Fed. And when the Fed is expanding their balance sheet, the S&P follows. There's a nearly perfect correlation between the Fed's balance sheet and the S&P 500. Even if the Fed starts to taper sooner than we expect them to, the balance sheet will continue to expand. So I think that's going to, above everything else, I think that's going to support the market between here and the rest of the year. So I'm sitting tight. Don't fight the Fed. Listen to what they say. Uh, Jim, I know you want to jump in. Go ahead. What do you think? Second half of the year. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. That's that's a world record for jumping in. But I thought you said Jimmy instead of Jenny. Uh Anyway. Uh, I I pretty much agree with what Jenny just said. In order to have a second half like the first half, you'd have a truly monster full year. Um, Yes, we still have an accommodative Fed. Yes, we still have fiscal stimulus in the system with more to come and and the economy is reopening. But 
I think what is likely to happen here is the trajectory is second quarter earnings likely to be very good, better than expected again. That may give a little lift to stocks that, frankly, the first quarter's earnings season did not give. We were kind of range-bound after the first quarter earnings season. I would expect a good uh, response to that. And then as you get through the rest of the year, look, we do have to worry about what the Fed will say at Jackson Hole, what it will actually do, what's going to come out of infrastructure versus taxes. So as Jenny said, I think it's going to go up, but I don't think it's going up in a straight line. It'll be a bumpy ride. You should be in. You shouldn't try to time any of this. This is a beautiful time to be in the stock market. Look at where profits are and look at how rapidly they're growing. Josh is writing to his millions of fans on email. So, Steve, I'm going to I'm going to let him finish his emails and uh, so ask you to go and tell us what you think for the second half. Look, I, I'm I never thought that picking points and percentage gains was the right way to go. I think that when you look at the market, you've got to look at directionally and what's in place to get it towards that direction and what you can anticipate, some of the factors that Jimmy pointed out. And I agree. I think that what was in place coming into this half of the year is still in place in terms of the stimulus, in terms of an economy that's really moving higher, stronger, corporate earnings that have picked up another level of efficiency in terms of driving those earnings from technology advancements and the only silver lining out of COVID, which is technology. So, look, I'm positively biased. Markets don't go up in a straight line, never do. We've gone a period of time now with any type of meaningful correction in terms of the overall indices, but we've seen it rolling underneath sector to sector. So, again, I'm positively disposed to it. I think the Fed's done an excellent job of conditioning the market that they will be moving the rate hikes in closer, not out in 2023 or 2024, as even some had suspected, but I believe you'll see it in early 2022, and the market's okay with that. It'll be very slow, and I expect to see tapering much sooner rather than later, maybe even the next meeting, while I think that's very out of consensus. So bottom line is, yes, the market's going to go higher, and it's a question of where you're positioned for it going on. But is the, is the market then, as we look at, we're going to go to in just a second to what people see as risks in the market. Is the market, Steve, ready for the, for the Fed to start either talking about tapering or actually tapering, you know, whether it's a lot or a little? I believe it is. Now, that's mm-hmm. not to say there won't be a knee-jerk reaction down by 5%, maybe even 10%, but that's to be bought. And that's why you keep cash. I actually think most of the more astute market participants want to see the tapering because they're worried about too much liquidity. And that's been the constant cry from those people. And I'm one of them. I'd like to see the Fed stop buying as much. Now, mm-hmm. they cut back on $20 billion, they're still buying just a boatload right? Uh, bonds. So, well, so there's it. nothing to worry about. So yes, I think the yeah, market's ready. For that's it. exactly Jenny's point. She said even if they taper, they're still going to be, the balance sheet is still going to be expanding. We're going to take a quick moment here, check in with Elon Moy uh, with a news alert. And Josh, I'll be right back to you. Elon. Well, Tyler, the House has passed a bill to rebuild the nation's roads, bridges and highways that Democrats hope will become the core of any bipartisan infrastructure package. The final vote tally was 221 to 201. Democrats unanimously supported it, but only two Republicans voted for it. Now, that is partly because House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has already said that further movement on this bill will be on hold until the Senate not only flushes out its own version of an infrastructure package, but also puts together a reconciliation 
reconciliation bill focused on the quote unquote human capital. Still, the details of this House bill, $715 billion total, major investments in transit and drinking water and wastewater. That could serve as a template for bipartisan legislation. Again, that bill has now passed the House 221 to 201. Tyler. All right, Elon, still a lot of sausage to be made, I guess would be one way of putting it. Elon Moy, thank you very much. Now, Josh Brown, uh, let's get to you with your thoughts on the second half after this really stellar first half uh, in stocks. So I, I guess I, I, I want to start by agreeing with what Steve said uh, about the market's likely reaction to the actual onset of the taper in whatever form and at whatever timing that that takes place in. Uh, and, and anyone else's guess is probably as good as mine. But I, if you look at the history of big, bad, negative catalysts that the market had spent uh, all this time looking, looking toward, like knowing these things are in the future, knowing they're going to happen, and, and everyone talking them to death and preparing and double preparing and hedging, Almost every single one of these big bad events that I'm referring to, capital BBE, almost every single one of them, the resolution for stock prices was higher, higher every time. The election in 2016 is an example. Brexit, that same summer earlier in 2016, is an example, right? Uh, the election we just had, the midterms, all of these things that we thought, uh-oh, this is the thing you have to be worried. It never works that way. The market, and by market, anthropomorphically, I mean the people who make up the market each day, they prepare themselves, they imagine worst-case scenarios, they get themselves all worked up in a lather, and then the day arrives, the thing happens, and the resolution is to the upside. Why is that? It's a, it's a, psychological, it's a psychological concept. Once the thing happens, even if it's a bad, a quote-unquote bad outcome, like raising rates, which, by the way, I don't think is a bad outcome, that's the moment where people say, okay, that's over with, right? Think about that. So think about the taper and what it means. Should we be in a situation where there are 9 million open jobs that can't be filled and home prices have increased by 25% in a year? Should we be in that situation and, and believe, honestly, that the situation requires further emergency monetary policy? Does anyone think that? Nobody thinks that. So we all understand that it would make sense for us to lessen the emergency response and do so very slowly. So if that starts in August or in December or next March is not the thing. The thing is everybody can now move on with their lives once that happens, knowing that we have crawled out of the emergency. So I think it could be a positive catalyst. I think a lot of people that make up the investor base are business owners. They see the costs of things they have to buy. Right. They see that they have to give $1,000 bonuses for new employees. They're not enjoying this environment as much as you think. I don't care how high Facebook stock goes. So I'm not looking at a taper as a negative. I'm looking at it as a potential positive. And history backs me up that it will be. It's a really interesting lesson. And I think you're exactly right. Because we, listen, between now and whenever the taper is, as you know, Josh, we're going to talk a lot about it here on CNBC. It's going to be well, right. I know we're going to we're going to gum this thing until our teeth are gone. And all we That's have okay. left is our That's gums. Okay, OK, but but 
But you think back election uh, Brexit, you think back to the tax bill in 2017, you think back to the trade deal, all this worry and handwring that we do here uh, because we've got to fill time, among other things. Usually it ends out positive. And I think it's a great thing to remember. Yes, sir. Mr. Weiss. Tyler, if you if you take the other side of that, what I worry about is what I don't know, what the market hasn't raised the concern. And that's always what's hit the market, whether it was tightening too soon, whether it was the pandemic, things that the market hadn't considered as a major risk. And to Josh's point, that's because it's got the surprise element that you didn't know was coming. It's what bites you in the tushy that that ends up really uh, knocking knocking things out of it. Let's play a little family feud here. I will play the role of Steve Steve Harvey in this. We went to uh, investors, Wall Street investors, uh, knowledgeable people, and we asked them a couple of questions about what they're looking for uh, or forward to or not in the uh, the second half of the year. And so we went in our quarterly stock report. We even have a we even have a, a logo and a jingle for it. So here was the survey question. What's the biggest risk to the market? Survey said inflation, 42 percent, COVID resurgence, 27 percent, Fed tapering, 21 percent, rampant, rampant retail speculation, 9 percent. Let me get your sequentially your reactions to those uh, to those survey results. Survey said 42 percent inflation, biggest worry. How about you, uh, Jenny? So that's actually not my biggest worry anymore. It was two and a half months ago, but to your point about talking until we don't have teeth left and we only have gums, we have talked about inflation. We have digested, dissected, debated, you know, speculated every version of what inflation might be. Is it temporary? Is it is it um, sustained? Blah, 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 blah. So the reality is, is I don't think this is going to be the biggest risk anymore because we've, we've talked about it too much. And once you talk about something too much, it becomes incorporated into the overall market. I think we're anticipating many different potential scenarios. I actually don't think that's it. I think it goes back to Steve's point. I don't think any of those four are actually it. Whatever does bite us in the, you know what? We're not anticipating it. We have no idea what it's going to be. It's always something that you don't expect. So, so, the, so, yeah, so your biggest risk to me. the market is something you can't anticipate, do not know, basically. Always. Fair point. Fair always. point. Let me, I'm going to wrap this part up and move on to the next question in just a minute. Josh, let me get your thought on that. What do you think the biggest risk to the market in the second half will be? Well, I think Jenny's right. It's always an exogenous event. Mm-hmm. Like, it, even if you just go back... To, Even if you just go back two years, look at all the chief strategist notes from the fourth quarter of 2019 doing their 2020 preview. It's not that they're doing shoddy work or that they're not intelligent, um, but they're all repeating a version of the same thing together, uh, saying like, all right, this is what we're concerned with for for 2020. And of course, Mm -hmm. top of everyone's list was election, right? You can only imagine. And then two months later, we have the worst pandemic in a century. Millions of people die, literally. Nobody had that in their note. So I hate to say this. There's going to be a reason to panic at some point in the future. There always is. Sometimes that'll be a valid reason. Most of the time it won't be. Mm-hmm. We have to, if, we're, if we say we want to earn above risk-free rates of return, right now risk-free rate of return is below the rate of inflation. It's basically zero. But if we say we want better than that, it's not free. The trade-off is we have to deal with what Jenny is talking about, which is some curveball coming out of nowhere and forcing us to confront a whole new risk that many people weren't considering. And that will happen, 
I'm 44 years old. I'm gonna watch a thousand versions of that happen throughout my investing career. I have made peace with that. The audience listening to us today right. has to make peace with that. But Tyler, the big picture, if they've been watching our show for the last three, five, seven, ten years, is that the sun's gonna come out tomorrow. And you may not like the next bit of news that hits, but we have to invest as though there will be t- a, a tomorrow. And Jenny and Steve and Jim Labenthal and, and the rest of us, that's what I think we try to bring to the table uh, each day, that, this- that idea. And by the way, that idea has enabled people to earn 15% annualized returns in the S&P 500 over the last 10 years. Not bad for a, quote, low-return environment. The sun will come out tomorrow. Was that from Annie? What, what play? What's, what, what musical was that from? Remember that song? Jenny, you seem to know. Annie. It was, it was Annie, Annie, right? I the sun will come out tomorrow. I when I was a kid. All right, let's go. Yeah. And I'm glad the 44-year-old... I make that up. The 44-year-old knew the, the lyric from Annie. We, our quarterly stock report also asked, which will do better in the next quarter? Value or growth survey said... Value, 67 percent. Growth, 32 to one. Steve Weiss in favor of value. You agree? Disagree? No, I I think that uh, let me let me put a different take on it. I think uh, growth at a reasonable price, which in my world is value. So I think you'll see that now There's certain segments of the so-called value universe with, with such as financials, which I think will do well. But we're going to go through the period. We sort of went through it already where the market recognizes that not all technology is created equal. And there are technology stocks that are valued on the here and now instead of on a 10-year discounted cash flow analysis mm-hmm. where raising interest rates just skew your model to make those even more expensive. So I look at value across the spectrum relative to what normalized earnings are and what earnings will be in the future as certain factors kick in, such as more 5G uh, adoption, which I think will be the single largest driver of the market and of growth stocks going forward. I think when we were together the last time, maybe it was yesterday or or, or Monday, we talked about this idea that growth sometimes can be value. You have a value pick that that sort of exemplifies that, right? It's a a medical tech Mm -hmm. company. Tell us what it is, your value pick. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm glad you said medical tech because it is truly a technology platform. And that's Moderna. Moderna is one of the cheapest stocks I own. It's selling at about seven and a half times earnings this year with just the best balance sheet of any company out there, not in the S&P yet. But that will be another driver because it will be going into the S&P because it'll have four quarters of positive earnings. That's more like a 2022 event, likely. But um, but. The story is, is that it's still thought of as a one-product company. I may have alluded to this on the prior show, such as Apple was, such as Amazon, just a bookseller uh, historically when it started. Mm-hmm. Facebook, just a, a place to exchange photos for your family. And then the products grew. And what we've got here, we've got gene editing, which I think the market still is way over their skis on because there are lots of controversial papers on it that does cause cancer because you're really affecting the gene. But if you take a look at what's in Moderna's pipeline and the future, you'll get the CMV, right. the birth defects vaccine this year, early next. It is by far the cheapest stock I own with the best growth prospects, bar none. Look at that. It's kind of a double play ball there. Jim, your pick is Cleveland Cliffs in the value area. Explain why. 
Yeah, it's, it's no surprise, Tyler, to people who've watched the show for a while. Um, you may look at this and say, well, this is just a commodity company. They mine iron ore and they turn it into steel. Big deal. But there's two reasons to like this. One is where we are in the economic cycle, which is to stay steel prices are high and the volumes that they're producing are also high. So they're just chugging out free cash flow. And that's a result of the second factor here, which is management. This is a management that made some key acquisitions in the last two years. First of AK Steel and then ArcelorMittal's U.S. operations. The market did not give the company credit for those acquisitions, which were basically immediately accretive. So what you've got right now is a free cash flow machine. And I just can't wait for the second quarter earnings to come out. I mean, I'll, I'll start beating this drum now. You're going to see free cash flow generation. You're going to see delevering of a size that is going to take the market by storm. And next year, their debt is probably going to be close to zero, and all that free cash flow starts coming back to us shareholders. So now is the time, not waiting for that to happen. Now is the time to be in this stock in anticipation of that. All right, let's move over to some growth choices. Josh, you go first. What's your growth choice for the second half? So uh, I've been talking about REITs all year, Tyler, and I want to highlight uh, Store Capital, which has had a tremendous run uh, off its lows from the pandemic, but is still not back to where it was trading at the end of 2019. This is, a, this is basically a company that can borrow at 2%, put capital out there to acquire uh, single-tenant real estate uh, for, for triple net leases and earn like 8 9% return on that capital. Anybody who knows anything about business would look at that and say, that is an incredible investment uh, if you could be involved in a business that has the ability to do that. And, and that's exactly what Store has been doing. They spent over a billion dollars in the pandemic period acquiring more real estate. This is a sub $10 billion uh, market cap REIT. The largest shareholder is Berkshire Hathaway. Um, I have been a shareholder almost since it came public. I think it's a phenomenal management. I love the concept. They are the best at what they do. The asset class itself, uh, a triple net lease opportunity, is over $2 trillion. I think there's a ton of ways that investors will make money in the stock over the next 5, 10 years. It is a growth company, uh, a value stock, but it's in a growth sector. And the only reason I think it's a, a value stock is because it hasn't been discovered um, the way it someday will be. So uh, that, that would be my, my play here. Yeah, very, very interesting. You, you go with store cap, but you got good company there with Berkshire and you, Josh. Uh, Jenny, your pick. I wonder if you're being affected here by the heat. Are you a little heat woozy here with your choice in growth? What? <laughs> what? Um, no, but it did make me think it would be a fun one to choose right now. Yeah, go ahead. Tell us what it is. So it's Carrier Corp, which makes HVAC systems. And I think they have both an environmental and a secular wind at their back. It's an interesting company. So what we know is that a huge, huge part of carbon, carbon emissions come from old and antiquated HVAC systems. Those need to be upgraded. People are moving to hotter and hotter geographies. It's getting hotter and hotter. Meanwhile, and this blurs that line between value and growth again, right? But meanwhile, it's trading at 20 times earnings. But it has double-digit earnings growth ahead of it. So it's really, like, call it a value, call it a growth. I think it's more of a philosophy of buying something at a price that's below where it deserves to be trading. I think with the earnings growth that it has ahead, it could easily see both um, earnings growth as well as multiple expansion to drive the share price up by double digits for, I don't know, maybe the next 3, 5, 10, 20 years. It should have a long tailwind. 
All right, we're going to call that a heat-addled choice from Jenny Harrington. So go ahead, <laughs> go you. with you, go with your carrier. All righty, let's bring in Adam Parker now to weigh in on the markets and the tech trade. He is the founder of Trivariate Research. I hope I got that word right, uh, Adam. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your your macro thoughts about the market for the second half of the year. What are you seeing uh, from your vantage point? Yeah, I'm still quite optimistic. You're right. It's trivariate, three variables. We look at the world from fundamental angle, quantitative angle, and a macro angle, our view is remaining optimistic. I, I heard some of the folks earlier talk about exogenous risks. I agree with that, that, that those are always possible. But I think what we can focus on as investors is what are the corporate behaviors? What would make me more negative or cautious would be if I saw hubris or debt, more signs of management arrogance gone awry, too much capital spending, too mm-hmm. much inventory, mm-hmm. too much hiring at the top of the cycle. I don't think we see any of that in really anywhere in the market. So I don't see a lot of impediments to earnings growing. The biggest risk I would see would be if you start getting input costs and labor costs offsetting revenue growth for companies. So I'm pretty bullish. I think it's a very simple logic, uh, which is earnings are growing, the economy is growing, the Fed's there, and there's fiscal stimulus. And if you want to fight that golden quadrangle, uh, go for it. Yeah, but I don't. All right. Well, I think you're, you're basically along with the with the other four in, in looking forward to a pretty good uh, second half of the year. And also, you know, sort of not buying the conventional wisdom that that it ha- that the risk has to be inflation or or the Fed or the or the uh, I think, COVID I think or whatever. The risk is, I think the risk is actually the, uh, on inflation is that actually it doesn't happen and people start fearing disinflation or deflation again. That's mm. probably more of a risk because most people I talk to actually I can't think of very many who uh, most people think the 10-year yield is going to back up. There's a few exceptions, but think most people do. And so they're positioned in sectors and stocks that will benefit if that continues to happen. So I think a risk could be your, your you know, sort of uh, offsides on that where, you know, um, maybe you're uh, making a value bet and uh, on both sides of your book, you're offside. So I think those are the biggest risks probably. Inflation doesn't happen the way people think. Let's go to your thoughts on Fang, 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 M being Microsoft, I guess, in, in that category. And you have some interesting thoughts here about this group of stocks uh, and, and what what role they play in a portfolio. Explain your your sort of nuanced position on them. Yeah, look, it's twenty two percent of the S and P five hundred. So if, if investors are benchmarking themselves to the S and P, you know, I think you have to own. Uh, a chunk of them, and it's a risk management decision, not really a, a alpha decision. Everyone I talk to, most people are bottom-up stock pickers, but I don't really think that's sensible logic on, on you know Facebook, Amazon, Apple, et cetera. Why? Because I can explain 70 to 80% of these stocks' returns from a, a simple macro model. What's left over, I can't replicate, I can't hedge. Uh, so it's very, uh, the macro part isn't explained consistently by anything like dollar rates, oil, or spreads. So I've got this beast that I can't deal with. And I look at the risk and I say, well, the drawdowns haven't been that high for Fangam relative to the top five stocks in other sectors. So I think I should own it. Uh, they're incredibly well covered. Very, very optimistic. I think Amazon's got 54 buy, zero, hold, zero sell. So these are very well covered securities. Hard to say you have a differentiated edge from the bottom up perspective. So my view is Fangam is risk, not alpha. And you should just own it in you know market weight. Maybe you own a little more of one, a little less of other, but keep your uh, approach close to the benchmark and then make your bets elsewhere. Let me make sure that I, that I understand you. You say Fangs, Fangum are risk, not alpha. Does that mean that they provide protection against market risk as opposed to excess portfolio gain? Is that is that the point? 
Well, I think you're kind of conflating a couple of things there, but I think just to, just to say it this way, there's some people say, look, I have some intrinsic value framework and I just think they're too expensive and mm-hmm. I don't own them and I can't get there and I can't get there with Amazon or whatever. And there are a lot of people like that. I'm sure the panelists will agree. And so the problem with there is that if you don't own any of them, you're saying I don't own 22% of the S&P 500. That's an enormous risk. You wouldn't, most people wouldn't say I'm willing to own zero consumer discretionary and zero financials. Both mm-hmm. those sectors combined are about the same size as Fang M. So I'm just saying, if you can't get there for some valuation reason, that doesn't make sense to me. That's a bottom-up reason. Yeah. That probably doesn't make sense. You got to get, you got to own something the risk management reason because if they continue to go higher as they had, you're just missing out on a big chunk of the market. Right. And when the market rolls over, they tend to hang in slightly better. So they've been a superior asset class. Why be underweight? Because you have some framework so, bottom up. Yeah. So, so, so among other things, I mean, basically, if you're a value investor, don't be too orthodox here and dismiss these as growth companies, uh, not value companies. They are really core companies, I guess, is, is what I'm deriving from what you're saying, Adam. Yeah. Yeah. Is that fair? Fair point? I think that's fair. I think if you're a value investor, obviously, it's a much smaller mm-hmm. piece of your comparative bench, right. uh, benchmark. But even there, I would say when growth outperforms value, the value universe is going to do poorly. So I think you have to get there on at least the bench weight, even right. in the value universe, just to make sure you're not making sort of an anti-fang bet in your portfolio. Have a great long weekend, Adam. Appreciate your being with, here, with us today. Anytime, guys. Be oh, well. You got Good it. You, Adam Parker up next. The investment committee uh, making a lot of moves in this market. We'll have their latest buys and sells. And a reminder, you can always... Always. Why would you not want to do anything else? Watch or listen to us live on the go on the app. Halftime is back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is LinkedIn.com slash Halftime Report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to LinkedIn.com slash Halftime Report and get started. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. Speaker Nancy Pelosi naming some of the House members who will be investigating the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Homeland Security Chairman Benny Thompson will lead the committee. Pelosi also picking Republican Liz Cheney as a member. The Supreme Court is ordering California to stop collecting the names and addresses of top donors to charities. 
Two nonprofit groups, including one with ties to billionaire Charles Koch, argue that California's policy violates the First Amendment. And court proceedings generating some of the day's biggest stories, voting rights, the Trump Organization and Bill Cosby. Shep will cover them all tonight on the news. U.S. and British intelligence agencies releasing hacking methods that they say have been used by the Russian military agency. NSA says that attacks are likely ongoing and is urging companies to improve their cybersecurity. And in London, British princes William and Harry unveiling a statue of their mother, Princess Diana, on what would have been her 60th birthday. Royal watchers have been eagerly awaiting the ceremony for clues on how the relationship with the brothers is going. Doing. Tyler, I'm not a royal watcher, but seems seems friendly. Yeah. Seems brotherly. Yeah, I mean, it, it really, when you think back, to, I'm amazed that she would have been 60. I mean, I, no. you, I can't get that very youthful sort of 30-something picture of her out of my mind. And the class in Greece, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Rahel, thanks. All right, let's uh, get back to the investment committee. They've been making some moves. Uh, and let's start with Steve. You sold Academy Sports. Those shares since then up more than 100% this year. You also bought Boeing for a trade, and you bought more XPO Logistics on the dip. That one's down about 6% in the last week. Talk us through these moves. Okay, so Academy Sports, simply put, the stock's done well for me, had a nice gain, nowhere near the 100%. KKR still controls the company. They've been an active seller. Active seller. I think they'll come to the market with some stock. They own about 51% of the company. So that was just taking something taking off. Taking profits. In terms, yep. of Boeing, in, in terms of Boeing, look, every stock needs a catalyst. I think I've identified the, the catalyst very, very precisely, and that's that Farmer Jim is due for a winner. So I'm trying to ride his coattails on that. Boeing's a big position of his. Uh, you you the, the finally next, got uh, the, the next... timing right, Steve. You finally got the timing right. I mean, you've been in and out of this, but look, yeah. last week, or actually this week, 777 News was, was negative, but everybody in the stock knew it. You got the huge United order. Stock was down. Bravo to you. You finally picked the right entry point. Now do yourself and us a favor and stay with it, my man. Stay with it. Give us, give us the 250, okay? Might be there next week. Okay, Jimmy. I, say, I said you're due. I didn't say you were an oracle. Okay, the <laughs> next one up. In terms of Micron, I had sold half the position going to earnings because my, my thought was that, as with, uh, with FedEx, which I thought was a great quarter, that there'd be a sell on the news. They did beat. They did raise some concerns about weakness pricing in the second half, which I think is unfounded. I will go back into what I had sold. It will still be a trading position. Uh, and then what was the other one, uh, Tyler? Well, I think you've covered them. I, I had XPO. 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 Yeah, XPO is just on a phenomenal trajectory, and then they came with some new issuance. And I think new issuance is fine. I wasn't glad to see the CEO sell some stock. He still owns 13%, right. but it's sold off. It's everything is on secondaries, so great opportunity to add to my position. Jenny, you've got a new financial in your portfolio. Give us the 20-second elevator pitch. Sure. My, my trades are few and far between. New York Community Bank Corp. It's got a 6% dividend yield. It's got probably mid double digit, like 16 to 20% earnings growth ahead of it, trading at 10 times earnings. Um, and I think there's kickers in terms of if interest rates actually do start to creep up, that could further accelerate earnings. I think it's really underappreciated because of its two, it's really close ties to the New York City community. But there are properties that they're lending to 
are actually doing really, really, really well, and they have like completely reasonable loan losses, like almost none. Yeah. Um, so we added that a couple weeks ago, and really right. happy with Fantastic. it. Fantastic, and well I love that my six percent yield. You get paid to own it. Thanks very much, Jenny. Yeah, Energy easy. stocks uh, <laughs> surging more than forty percent so far this year. That sector, uh, best first half ever. Is there still more room to run? We'll talk about that. The committee will debate their top peak picks in that space next on Halftime. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Well, if you like to play the winners, you'd go no further than energy stocks, surging more than 40% this year so far. Best first half ever for that sector. But Josh, you, you say watch out. This one could bite you. When people see 100 uh, percent returns in a sector over like a three month period or a six month period, they get really excited. But actually, returns of that magnitude in that short of a period of time are not bull markets. They are bear market rallies. Bear market rallies tend to catch a lot of people off sides. They come out of nowhere. They surprise you with the, the speed and the alacrity with which they take place. And they get fueled by this FOMO of people feeling like, oh, my God, I missed it. I missed it. We've seen several of these in crude oil and oil-related equities over the last seven years since oil has been in an obvious, pronounced, prolonged bear market. I don't know that we have the evidence to say that this is the end of that. So it's an amazing rally if you caught it. If you own these stocks at the bottom, of course, you've done very well. But I don't think that that should tell you anything about what happens from here. So I would not be chasing these stocks here. I would not be chasing crude oil either. Just my personal opinion. Steve, you, you, uh, you can concede that oil prices can keep going. You missed it, but you've just bought the XLE. And it's a very tight trade. Uh, last time in the XLE, I was shorted, and that was a good trade. I think momentum will continue because of the OPEC meeting. We're just seeing the results, which were better than expected. So tomorrow you're going to have every analyst come out, every commodity analyst raise their price target for oil again, and that's when I'll be a seller. I agree with Josh. Oil is traditionally a poor asset and has put a lot of people on the bread lines, as have other commodities. I don't think it's going to be any different this time. Jenny, there's energy and then there's energy. Of course, there's, there's oil companies, there are drillers, there's, those, there's also the power companies like Duke Energy. You've got a fair amount of, uh, of holdings in, in energy, broadly defined. Yeah, and I pretty much have the opposite view on this from Josh. I also don't think that a three-month period is something to look at when you make decisions. So I take a step back. I look at what the energy sector has returned over the past five years. It's actually been negative 5% annualized. Meanwhile, you've seen the price of WTI go from about $43 a barrel to about $75 a barrel. Usually the price, and per, the price of the XLE and WTI are very highly correlated. Right now they've diverged. I'm sorry, I meant to say the performance of the two. So there's a lot of room there. I also think this whole environmental push that we've seen, which is wonderful in the long run, it's created a problem. And the problem is, is that supply has pulled back. Meanwhile, demand has not peaked yet. And the alternatives like solar and wind are not strong enough to pick up the slack. And I think that's going to continue to drive the price of oil higher. And I think support this 
investment or trade for a lot longer than people are thinking. So I would say take a longer, broader look at this. Look at the companies like Chevron that are trading at about 15 times forward earnings. And that's presuming oil at about the prices we're at now. That's not even presuming oil price. the oil price goes up from here. So I think there's a lot longer runway. I don't think you're going to have 100% return, but you are going to have meaningful positive return right. in the future in the All energy right. space. The, the, I think there's money to be made. And this is where a market is made in the, in the, dif, the disputing points there from Josh and Jenny. General Motors' second quarter sales are out. Sales up, a share, excuse me, shares are up 40% this year. The number's in the trade next on Halftime. While investors are closely watching the automaker stocks as second quarter sales numbers come in throughout the day, uh, let's go to Phil LeBeau now with some details. Hey, Phil. Tyler, we've gotten a number of the auto sales for the second quarter and some for June, some for the first half. There's a mishmash in terms of how they report these, but let's run through the numbers. General Motors reporting an increase in sales of almost 40 percent, roughly in line with expectations. The shares not doing a whole lot today. This was pretty much in line with expectations, and that's really what we've seen from a number of the automakers. GM's inventory, by the way, dropped 36% from the end of Q1 to the end of Q2. Hyundai, Q2 sales up 39%, also posting record June sales. By the way, Kia, similar result. Strong sales for June as well as the second quarter. And then you've got Toyota. It reported June and first-half sales. For June, sales were up almost 40%. Record first half truck sales. So, you know, we talk all the time about Ford and GM and Ram and about the strong truck sales. Well, Toyota is also enjoying strong truck sales. Really, almost any vehicle that's out there right now, it's in demand. And that's why when you take a look at the annual auto sales, the pace of sales is not going to be quite as strong as what we've seen the last couple of months. Most believe it's going to be between 16 point, or I should say uh, six, 15.7 and 16 million vehicle units for the month of June. For a point of reference, April was more than 18 million. So you can see how much the pace has slowed down. Mm. Two other notes, Ford and Tesla. Ford we get tomorrow. Tesla we will likely get tomorrow. Tesla likes to say, we'll report it sometime in the first three days of the, the second of the whatever quarter after the end of uh, each quarter. So we should get it tomorrow. That is the expectation. Take a look at shares of Ford and Tesla over the last three months. Tyler, back to you. Phil, thank you very much. Let's uh, go around a little bit and uh, start with Jenny. You've got some Tesla, your long, uh, excuse me, some Toyota, your long Toyota. <laughs> no way. Right, we're long Toyota. We're sure not long Tesla. <laughs> um, so we've actually owned Toyota for five years, and this is a really long-term holding. I wouldn't be surprised if we own for another five years. As we think about the move to EV, we've always believed that the companies that can generate their own free cash flow and massive amounts of it are probably going to win that space. Toyota's always been at the forefront of improving technology. We think it's going to stay there. So meanwhile, you've got a company with a great dividend yield trading at 11, 12 times earnings. It's really compelling and phenomenal management. And Jim, uh, GM is one of your holdings and, and doing quite nicely. Yeah, and it's hard to really, uh, in one breath, say all the positive things that are going on right now. Phil touched on them. Average transaction prices at a record. Incentives are incredibly low. The chip shortage is is, uh, easing. You've got record retail demand. You've got the fleets coming back, the rental cars coming back. Used car prices, we talked about in in CPI, how used car prices are high. That really helps the captive finance arms. 
And then there's Cruise, which is the autonomous vehicle division that's starting to run robo-taxis in San Francisco. I'm out of breath. I mean, there's just too many good things going on. It'll set a new high this year. Wow. All right, Jim, thank you. Uh, and stay with us, folks. Ask Halftime is next. We'll be right back with that and more. All right, uh, the investment committee ready to answer your questions. And let's begin with Josh Brook in Florida writes, Josh, comma, I purchased some gap shares last week and was thinking about adding to my position. Would you buy, sell or hold? We did a story yesterday on Power Lunch, Josh. Uh, Yeezy is coming in to help gap. I know you're a big Yeezy guy. So, so yeah, so the, the note that I'm looking at basically uh, puts... Kanye's value to Gap at uh, about $3.8 billion. That's a billion dollars in revenue, and they look at the gross margin contribution, et cetera. So that would put the stock $10 higher than where it is today into the mid-40s. That's reasonable. We don't know how damaged this guy's brand is uh, post-Kardashian split up, post going to the White House and building a model plane for Trump. Like, we don't know if he still has the same brand power as maybe he did two years ago. This will be how we find out. So that's the bet that you'd have to make here. All right, let's move on to Jenny. Gary in Ohio writes, most of the travel stocks like Delta Air, Marriott Southwest, they've been drifting lower over the past three months. When will these break out to the upside again? Exactly when? To the minute, Jenny, please. To the second. Yeah. So in exactly 47 minutes. Yeah, okay, um, I think you need to be really careful. You need to be really careful with lumping those together. You've got Marriott that over the past couple years has increased rooms by 10% slash costs over the last year. Integrated Starwood, by the way, kept its debt flat. And then you've got Delta, who's increased since the pandemic, who's increased their long-term debt from $8 billion to $27 billion. So be careful with lumping those together. But I think they will break out as the third, second and third quarter numbers start to come in and you see how good those earnings are. In the case of Marriott, for example, we think by 2023 they could get to $10 a share, which puts them at a 14 times multiple. Right. Really cheap, really Jenny, compelling. thank you very much. We're going to break here. But before we do that, I want to tell you about Krispy Kreme just started trading uh, and it is trading lower by about 2%. First trade, 16.30. The uh, opening price, I guess, was 17, if I'm seeing the screen right there. So right now, first trade, 16.30. That is down 2%. Hold the donuts. Final trades next on Halftime. Krispy Kreme now trading glazed and confused. That's what I'd call it. Opened about 17. It was down. It was up. It was down. And now it is up by 0.62% at 17.10. Glazed and confused. Time for final trades. Weiss, you first. I added to Volkswagen. no reason for it to be down, even though all auto companies are down. They closed their deal with Navistar for their commercial truck unit, which will be huge. It's the cheapest company out there. And what I find somewhat amusing is everybody talks about EV for owning GM. They are the number one EV company in the world. $50 billion in CapEx hard to with more models in EV than anybody else, including Tesla. All right, Jenny, you're next. Final trade. Well, I've already given you all the reasons, so Chevron. Chevron, there you That's go. <laughs> Simply put, Chevron. Josh, you're next. Stock we mentioned earlier, I think. Uh, no, no, we iterate not. store capital. I think this one's headed to 40. Store capital heading to 40, 36 right now. There you see it up 4% today. Jim, you wrap it up for us. Got 30 seconds. You got it. Well, first off, 
Yep. Steve, no need to be so angry. You can still get into GM. You'll, you'll be happy if you do. But the final trade for today, Thermo Fisher, excellent medical company, well-run, good valuation, and breaking out of a several-month-long consolidation. They will do well regardless of whether there's a pandemic on or not. Jenny, gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, putting up with me today. It was fun to be with you, spend an hour. Thank you all for watching. That does it for Halftime. The exchange begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.